Well, thank you so much uh, to the Kids Chorale for leading us in worship tonight. What wonderful songs that help us to reflect on Christ, who he is, and what the Eternal Son has done for us at the, in obedience uh, to the Father. Well, tonight we're privileged to have Anthony Kidd once again uh, preaching to us. If you've been here for a few years, uh, you know that Anthony has been here before. This is his fifth time to be a part of Legacy Conference. He was at our very first uh, one. Uh, there are um, many reasons that I love uh, Anthony and his wife, uh, Sherry. They are such an encouragement to Pam and me. We cherish their friendship, but uh, Anthony is a, is, uh, is a faithful pastor. He's been pastoring uh, for the last 11 years at Community of Faith uh, Bible Church in the southern part of the Los Angeles area and before that in pastoral ministry as well. And he loves the local church, he loves people, he loves the word of God, he loves Christ. He and Sherry are such wonderful examples of their love for their family and how they serve their family and how they serve the church family as well. So I appreciate him more than words can say. And we're always glad to have him come preach to us. Sometimes people ask me, uh, you know, who, who, are, who do you have on staff there? And I say, well, it's myself, and then we have Danny and... Kevin and Kyle, and then I think, and Anthony. Uh, you know, he's been here long enough. Uh, many times we can count him as part of the pastoral staff of our church. Uh, Anthony, Sherry, thank you for being with us again. Anthony, you come and preach to us. Really, the truth be told, the reason that uh, he said all of the reasons that he asked me back, the real reason that he asked me back is because he is so merciful, and he just keeps giving me opportunities to get it right. And so I thank the Lord for our friendship with uh, Carrie and Pam. They're, they're, they're dear to us. We love it. And uh, when we have the opportunity, they, they host us. And it is just a dear, dear privilege for us to be back with you guys. And uh, I look around and I see new faces, faces that, that, that I haven't seen before. The church is growing. God's grace is evident. Praise the Lord for that. We've been uh, up hearing all the updates about the new building project, and that's a good problem to have. That, that, that's a sign of God's grace on your behalf here at this church, and we praise the Lord for that. We pray for you regularly and are delighted to be uh, a part of this conference once again uh, with the privilege to meet Rick and Penny for the first time and be blessed by his ministry last night. It was wonderful. I, I felt real bad there because he was just preaching everything that I had in my notes last night. And, Tried to do a brand new sermon this morning, so I'm, I'm excited to see what the Lord has to say to us uh, this evening. So let's bow in a word of prayer, and then we'll open our Bibles together. Father, indeed, you are good, and you are faithful, and you are worthy to be praised. And we gather ourselves together, celebrating your grace and your mercy to us as your people. And Lord, so we pray now that you would gird up the loins of our minds and grant us the grace to think your thoughts after you. We pray, our Father, that you would remove any and all distractions so that we would uh, be attentive to your word. Um, Lord, what we have not, give to us. What we are not, make us. And what we know not, teach us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I invite you all to take a Bible and join me in Isaiah chapter 46, Isaiah chapter 46, and we're going to be looking at verses 8 through 11 as a starting point to discuss the doctrine of divine providence. 
As you turn in there, many of you may know that the word providence actually is not in our Bible. But it's a word that we use to capture what we believe is a controlling theological thread that is woven throughout the entirety of Scripture. And from Genesis to Revelation, we believe that God's providence touches every part of the unfolding drama of redemption. It is expansive, it is inscrutable, and it is mysterious. But having said that, the doctrine of providence is also deeply comforting and deeply reassuring for those who embrace it. To know that this universe and our lives are not at the whims of blind chance or dark fate or good or bad luck, but rather that our lives in this universe are being governed by a good and loving and wise God is arguably one of the most heart-securing truths that we can ever know. And so I'm going to read these verses in our hearing as we prepare to go to God's Word. Then I want to set before us four headings. So if you're taking notes, you can write these down. Four headings to help us grow in our understanding and appreciation of the doctrine of divine providence so that we might more fully worship and praise our Heavenly Father. And let me just give you guys the four headings up front, and then I'll, I'll read the text. So the four headings are we're going to look at providence declared, providence declared, secondly, providence defined, thirdly, providence defended, and time permitting, fourthly, providence displayed. So providence declared, providence defined, providence defended, then providence displayed. But for our text, which I'm using as a starting point, I want us to look here at Isaiah 46, verses 8 through 11. I want to back up just to set the context for our verses into verse 11. So if you're there, give me a hearty amen. And listen to God's word to us this evening. Listen to me, O house of Jacob, and all the remnant of the house of Israel, you who have been born by me from birth, And have been carried from the womb. Even to your old age I will be the same. And even to your grain years I will bear you. I have done it. And I will carry you. And I will bear you. And I will deliver you. To whom would you liken me? And make me equal and compare me. That we would be alike. Those who lavish gold from the purse. And weighs silver on the scale. Hire a goldsmith and he makes it into a god. They bow down. Indeed, they worship it. They lift it upon the shoulder and carry it. They set it in its place and it stands there. It does not move from its place. Though one may cry to it, it cannot answer. It cannot deliver him from distress. Remember this. And be assured, recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things long past, for I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there is no one like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things which have not been done, saying, my purpose will be established. I will accomplish all my good pleasure, calling a bird of prey from the east, The man of my purpose from a far country. Truly, I have spoken. Truly, I will bring it to pass. I have planned it. Surely, I will do it. And let the church say, I can just read that one more time and just say amen and dismiss us. 
Because what we find here is a clear teaching of the sovereignty of our God. The context is this, beloved. Uh, Isaiah is speaking to Israel. It's about 700 years before the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it, it's, a, it's a prophetic warning here in this text. Israel uh, has not yet been disciplined and chastised by the Lord, but that is going to happen. And they're going to go into Babylonian captivity. And they're going to be confronted with the dead idols that the Babylonians serve. And what God is doing, speaking through the prophet, he is telling them that when they go there, do not be tempted to turn to the dead idols that don't care for them, cannot preserve their lives, and will not deliver them. And he gives a comparison here. He declares his own sovereignty and his own providence so that when they go into captivity, they will not be tempted to turn to the dead idols. In other words, he is saying, I am God. Do not turn from me. And we can see that even if you back up into verse 3, he calls them. He says, listen to me, O house of Jacob, and all the remnant of the house of Israel. And look at how how he describes himself in relationship to his people. He says to them, you have been born by me from birth. In other words, I am your creator. I am your maker. And and, and we can't be sure whether he's going all the way back to Abraham or he's going all the way back to the deliverance uh, uh, from Egypt. But he is saying to them, they owe their existence because of him. He is their sovereign creator and maker. Verse 4, even to your old age, I will be the same. And even to your grand years, notice this, I will bear you. In other words, I am not only your creator, I am not only your maker, but I am your preserver. That I was with you when you came into this world. I was with you when you were born. And even to the end of your lives, into your gray years, I will bear you. I am not a God that started you off and a God then that lets you go. Somebody say amen. I am a God that from start to finish, I will be with you. He has borne them along and he wants them to remember that. Look, Notice what he says there. I have done it. And I will carry you, and I will bear you, and I will deliver you. Six times I will. He's referring to himself. This is our God. He is a God who is a hands-on God. And Israel needed to be reminded of that lest they turn to the so-called gods of the nations that are not alive. And that's the next three verses. Notice what he says there in verse 5. If this is who I am, the God that you owe your creation to, your sustenance to, your preservation to, I govern you and I will deliver you, to whom then will you liken me? Is there anyone else like me? Uh, The answer obviously is no. But then he goes on to describe the idols. You guys see that in verse 6? Those who lavish gold from the purse and weigh silver on the scale, hire a goldsmith and, and makes it uh, a god. You guys get it? In other words, I am God and I made you, but when it comes to the idols, somebody makes it. You guys see the contrast there? What kind of god is this that owes its existence to the very ones who worship it as God? Foolish, isn't it? But he's warning them there. He is saying that, that, that they hire a goldsmith and he makes it into a God and they bow down. Indeed, they worship it. 
They lift it upon the shoulder and carry it. They set it in its place and it stands there. Do you see the reversal? In other words, God has said, I'm the one that lifts you up. I'm the one that carries you. I'm the one that bears you along. But when it comes to the idol, the one who makes the idol and then bows down to worship it, they actually have to pick the idol up and carry it. And it cannot move. It does not move. It remains in its place. And though they cry to it, it cannot answer. It cannot deliver him from distress. In other words, what God is doing here is he is declaring his godness. He is saying by definition what it means to be God, it means to be sovereign. It means to be active in what I create, in those whom I create. I am God. And then in verses 8 through 10, he calls them. He calls them to remember. You guys, look at your Bibles there if they're still open. Remember this. Recall it to mind. Remember. In other words, I summon all of you to listen to what I am saying. It's an urgent call. It's a serious call. It's a sober call. They need to hear this, and we need to hear this as well. Lest we turn our minds and our hearts to dead idols that cannot deliver us. Oh, we don't make wooden idols anymore like they made wooden idols, but we do have our idols still. There are still temptations in our life to turn from the one true living God who is the sovereign creator and maker and sustainer and preserver and ruler and deliverer of our lives and put our hope and our faith and our trust in those things that cannot deliver us. So this is a a declaration to all of us. Remember, verse 8 says, and be assured, it, it can even be translated, remember this, and stand on firm ground. Let me put underneath your feet the solid rock of my sovereignty and my providence which works through sovereignty. Recall it to mind. Don't let it ever go out of your mind that this is who I am as your God. Remember, verse 9, the former things long past for I am God. And there is no other. I am God and there is no one like me. And here it is. He says, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things which have not been done. How can he do that? Because he's God. You guys understand that God always starts with the end in mind. Praise the Lord. He always starts with the end in mind because he's God. God makes a purpose. God makes a plan. And then if we can put it this way, he works himself backwards. He knows what he's going to do in his sovereign mind in the counsel of his own will. He decrees the end and then works backwards and he can fulfill all of his purposes. He is telling them, do not remember that reality or do not forget that reality. Saying, verse 10, my purpose will be established and I will accomplish all my good pleasure. Pastor Rick was preaching about that. I got so nervous because he actually turned to Isaiah 46 last night. Brother, what are you doing? That was my assignment. But it fits into the counsel of God's own will, that God has a counsel, God has a will, and God has authority over what he's created. He is sovereign over what he's created, so he can always accomplish his good purpose. He speaks, and it is the plan, and it is set forth, and nothing can thwart his plan. He needs for his people to remember that. They are being called to trust in his sovereignty. 
That's what it means to be sovereign, right? It just means to be in charge, right? I mean, some of you guys are old enough to remember there was a movie called Charles in Charge. Everybody under 30 is like, what is he talking about? Scott Bale, you guys don't remember, right? But Scott Bale was anything in charge of those kids that he was taking care of, right? That's not God. God is, in fact, in charge, the sovereign creator of all things. And he's not a deist. He's not a God that has just created things and wound it up and then stepped away from it. No, he is, he is intimately involved with all that he has created. He sustains it. He preserves it by the power of his word and all of its properties and his activities. God is exercising sovereign authority and power over everything. And everything then is moving to a goal that he purposed before time began. Hallelujah. What a God we serve. And Israel needed to remember that as they would go into the land of Babylon, even so much so that he says, I'm going to leave you there, but then I'm going to call a pagan king. And he's speaking of Cyrus in verse 11, calling a bird of prey from the east, the man of my purpose from a far country. Truly, notice this, truly I have spoken, truly I will bring it to pass, I have planned it, surely I will do it. That's his sovereignty. Truly, I have spoken. I have ultimate authority. And you can see it, just the parallelism there on the last two lines of verse 11. Truly, I have spoken. I have planned it. God speaks what he plans. And God plans what he speaks. It is his sovereign good pleasure. And he puts that forth. And he will bring it to pass. The second line, I will do it. It has a Ephesians 1.11 kind of ring to it, doesn't it? Or having been predestined according to his purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his own will. And please never make the mistake of thinking the counsel of his own will is that he's counseling with someone else. It is the will of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, our great triune God. They don't counsel outside of themselves. They decide what they desire to do, and they speak it, and they do it. And nothing can stand in their way. Our brother mentioned Romans 11.36, and I call this the great sovereign triangle. For from him and through him and to him are all things. Just think about that. Just put a triangle in your mind's eye and think of God being sovereign. For from him all things flow from him and through him all things must go through him and to him all things in and terminate in his praise and his glory. This is our God. And the question then comes in, how does he do it? That's the the question that comes in. How how does he actually do it? How how, how does his sovereignty then work? If, in fact, he plans something and he starts from the end and then works his way back, how can he ensure that all of it works together for his glory? How can he take all of the gazillion contingencies and none of those contingencies work against what he's planned to do before the foundation of the world? How can we be sure and have the foundation that that we can have our faith built on the reality that every single promise that he makes will come to pass? How many fathers do we have in the room? Praise the Lord for you fathers. How many of you guys have made promises to your kids? Praise the Lord. How many of you guys have broken a promise to your kid? Right. 
And we mean well, don't we, when we make promises, right? But we are not in absolute control of all of the factors that need to come together for us to fulfill all of those promises. We can promise to take our son to a ball game. We can buy the tickets. We can buy the hat and then get a flat tire, and we can't make it there, right? And sometimes it just happens that we break promises, but not with our father. There is nothing, nothing, nothing that could ever happen that would prevent him from fulfilling his good purposes. And so when we think about how this works itself out, that's where we come into the doctrine of divine providence. Divine providence, which then leads us to our second heading. That's, that's, that, that's providence declared, but now we want to look at providence defined. Providence defined. I could go to a text like Proverbs 16, 9, which simply reads, The mind of man plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps. That's providence in a nutshell. Essentially, that's what it is. But there's certainly more to it than that. And let me just give us a few definitions from outside of Scripture, but I think they're faithful to, to, to really capsulize what we mean by divine providence. And you guys are taking notes. I'll read these a couple of times, but if not, I can give you guys copies of these. So first of all, a definition of divine providence. What are we talking about when we say divine providence? The Westminster Shorter Catechism says this. It defines providence this way. God's works of providence are his most holy, wise, and powerful, preserving and governing all his creatures and all their actions. It's good. I'll read it one more time. God's works of providence are his most holy, wise, and powerful, preserving and governing all his creatures and all their actions. Here's one from Louis Burkhoff, a theologian of old. He writes this in his Systematic Theology. Providence may, define, may be defined as the continued exercise of the divine energy whereby the creator preserves all his creatures is operative in all that comes to pass in the world and directs all things to their appointed end. I like that one a little bit better. Let me, let me just emphasize a couple of things there. Providence may be defined as the continual exercise of the divine energy, that is God's power, whereby the creator, who is God, preserves, one, preserves all his creatures. Number two, is operative in all that comes to pass in the world. And number three, directs all things to their appointed end. Wayne Grudem, in case you didn't like Burkhoff, here's Wayne Grudem. A little bit more contemporary, Wayne Grudem writes this. God is continually involved with all created things in such a way that he, one, keeps them existing and maintaining the properties with which he created them. Two, cooperates with created things in every action, directing their distinctive properties to cause them to act as they do. And number three, directs them to fulfill his purposes. Now, all those are really good, but I want to give you one more. And I'm going to give you one more because it's my favorite because it's the shortest one of all. And I can memorize this one. And this one comes from John Piper. And he just simply says this in his massive book, Providence. He says, Providence is God's purposeful sovereignty. Now, I can get my mind around that. I can memorize that one. 
And it's just like John Piper to give a, a three-word definition and then go on to write 711 pages on that, right? So don't think if you go get his book, it's going to be that short, right? It is a massive book. I commend it to you. But he says that providence is God's purposeful sovereignty. And I like that because he brings sovereignty together with providence. They are actually two separate things. Uh, providence flows out of sovereignty like, 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 like sunlight flows out of the sun. It, it is a component of his sovereignty. So sovereignty just simply means that, that God is in charge, that God is supreme, that God has ultimate authority and power. And providence then is his ultimate and supreme power and authority in action. So that's going to be our working definition, that, that it is God's purposeful sovereignty. And that's really what our text was saying. For I am God and there is none like me. My purpose will be established and I will accomplish all my good pleasure. So if that's the definition, here then is the question. Can we see that in scripture? Can can, can we take those definitions and roll them all together? Are are these just theologians kind of just doing what theologians sometimes do, sit back and just kind of come up with a definition to try to impress people? Or is it true that the Bible is filled, as I said in the beginning, from Genesis to Revelation, that God's sovereignty and his providence is the controlling theological thread that works all the way through the drama of redemption? And so that leads us then to our third heading, providence defended. Providence defended. And what I want to do here, brothers and sisters and friends, is give us ten examples or ten statements of God's providence to help us see just how pervasive it actually is in Scripture. I I can't be totally exhaustive here. These ten points of the extent of God's providence, I'm going to comment on some. Some I may not uh, comment on, but I want you just to see how pervasive God's sovereignty is in the outworking and the development of his plan and purposes. So this is going to be a Bible drill, right? I should have you guys all hold your Bible up and this is my Bible. No, I'm not going to do that, right? This is a Bible drill because we're going to go to a lot of places in Scripture. So number one, if you're taking notes, so this is Providence Defended, 10 statements or 10 points of the extent of providence. Number one, I want you to note this, that God's providence extends over all creation. God's providence extends over all creation. Psalm 103.19 says this, The Lord has established his throne in the heavens and his sovereignty rules over the universe. The Lord reigns in heaven and his sovereignty rules over the universe. And is that not what the pagan king Nebuchadnezzar realized as God put him on his back for months because he was high and haughty and thought that he was the one that was sovereign? And God did that, but when he came to his senses in Daniel chapter 4, verse 34, we find these words. But at the end of that period, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes toward heaven and my reason returned to me. And I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion and his kingdom endures generation to generation. 
All the inhabitants of the earth are counted as nothing, but he does according to his will in the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and no one can ward off his hand or say to him, what have you done? Let the church say amen. Our God, our Father is sovereign and he rules and he reigns over all of the universe. But secondly, I want you to notice as well that God's providence not only extends over all creation, but God's providence extends over all the physical world. Your Bibles are still open. Meet me in Psalm 135. Psalm 135. These are just samples of texts that we could go to to underscore the pervasiveness of the providence of God. God's providence extends over the physical universe. Psalm 135, verse 5. For I know that the Lord is great and that our Lord is above all gods. Whatever the Lord pleases, he does in heaven and in earth, in the seas and in the deeps. He causes the vapors or the, or the clouds to ascend from the ends of the earth, who makes lightning for rain, who brings forth the wind from his treasuries. In other words, the psalmist is saying God is sovereign and he rules and he providentially even controls the seas and the deeps of the seas. All of the rain, all of the lightning, all of the wind is in his control is in his control. Psalm 104, and I would commend the entire psalm to you for your own reading through the whole thing. I just want to point up one text there, Psalm 104, verse 14. I'll back up to verse 10. He sends forth springs in the valleys. They flow between the mountains. They give drink to every beast of the field. The wild donkeys quench their thirst. Besides them, the birds of the heavens dwell. They lift up their voices among the branches. He waters the mountains from upper chambers. The earth is satisfied with the fruit of his works. He causes even the grass to grow for the cattle and vegetation for the labor of man so that he may bring forth food from the earth. Do you guys get it? That, that, that he just not only set nature in motion, he is moving in and through nature. It's, it's not that he wound it up and, and moved away. He actually is hands-on doing all of that. This is our God. Storms and famines and winds and sea, he controls it all through his providence. Number three, God's providence extends over the nations. God's providence extends over the nation. Psalm twenty-two twenty-eight says this, For the kingdom is the Lord's, and he rules over the nations. He rules over all of the nations. And then in Psalm 33, if you guys want to turn there, Psalm 33, verse 10, The Lord nullifies the counsel of the nations. He frustrates the plans of the peoples. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of his heart from generation to generation. Paul said this in Acts. Let me read it. You don't have to turn there. Acts 17, 26. He that is God, our Father, made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth having determined the appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation, that God is in charge of all of the nations. And so when we turn on the news and we see what's going on in Russia and we see what's going on in Ukraine and we see what's going on in North Korea, we see what's going on in Taiwan, we don't have to fret. God is in charge of it all. Do you believe that? 
that God is sovereignly moving. We don't always understand it. That doesn't mean that we have to take a flippant attitude toward us. Our hearts can lament. We can grieve. We can see war-torn nations, people being displaced. But please understand, that is not outside of the purview of the control of our Father. All of the nations, all of their inhabited times, he raises kingdoms up and he brings kingdoms down. He determines just how wide the kingdoms are. And if I wanted to stir up some trouble, I'll say he determines even the borders of what the kingdoms are. Amen. God does that because he's in control of it all. And so we don't have to fret, loved ones, but we can understand that our God is moving, our God is reigning, our God is controlling, our God is preserving, our God is governing, and all of it, all of it is moving towards its appointed end. He is in control over the nations. Number four, God's providence extends over rulers of nations. Not just over nations, but over rulers of nations. You all know Proverbs 21, uh, 1. The king's heart is like channels of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wishes. He turns it all because the king's heart is like water in his hand. And it's not harder for him to turn a, a king's heart that's a Republican any more than it is for him to turn a king's heart that's a Democrat. And let the church say, Amen. It's like water to him, brothers and sisters, and we stand on the brink, do we not, on November 6th of another election cycle. And can it be that this time, as the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, who understands the sovereignty of our God, that we not fret. We exercise according to conscience that, that, that is framed and informed by the word of God, our civic duty, if that's what you're called to do. But shall we not fret? God raises just like he raises kingdoms up. He raised kings up, and he brings them down. He's the one that sovereignly, providentially is moving to appoint whomever he wishes to every city council on the planet. He does that, brothers and sisters. And we can rest assured that as he's doing it, even if our guy or even if our girl doesn't win, that God is not caught off guard. We can wake up on November 7 and be okay. Amen. Because it's about the sovereignty and providence of God moving, controlling all that is happening towards their appointed end. I love Romans 9, 17. We don't have time to turn to it. But as Paul is, is articulating the doctrine of the sovereignty of God, particularly in salvation, that he says he will have mercy upon whom he will have mercy. He will have compassion upon whom he may have compassion. And he uses Pharaoh as an example. And he says, for this very reason, I raised Pharaoh up. I raised him up because I wanted to display my glory and my justice and my righteousness in him as I delivered my people. And I went so far as to harden his heart. That's what the text says. That God is that sovereign that he can work providentially in the hardening of the heart to accomplish his own purposes. That's sovereign grace. That's sovereign mercy. That's our sovereign father. Number five. Number five. God's providence extends over what we would perceive as random acts and even accidents. God's sovereign extends over what we would perceive as random acts or even accidents. Proverbs 16.33 says this, The lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. 
Now, I was going to use an illustration about those of you that go to Las Vegas and you gamble, but I thought, like, that's probably not the best example to use, right, when you lose all of your money. But he's saying that, right, if we can bring it up to speed, right, that you can roll the dice, and if it rolls out to be snake eyes, <laughs> that's God that did that. That's how intricate, that's how extensive his sovereignty is and his providence is that even something like the rolling of the dice where they're laying, that is of the Lord. Jesus says to his disciples in Matthew chapter 10, calm your anxious hearts. He said this, are not two sparrows sold for one cent and yet not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. That what we would receive as an accident, the bird falls out the sky. A tiny bird, the most insignificant bird of their days. And and Jesus says, that's our Father doing that. It's not just that our Father knows that, that our Father wills that. And then he goes on to say that like every hair on your head is numbered by the Lord. Right? He doesn't count mine anymore. (laughs) I release the burden from the Father, right? (laughs) Some of you brothers help me do that. But do you understand something as simple as that? Dear sisters, when you're combing your hair and you look in the seat and you go, my God. In all seriousness, God is working even through that. Even that is not outside of his purview. There is no such thing for the Christian as an accident as such. But God, even in those things, is at work sovereignly moving. Number six, God's providence extends over life's circumstances. What I mean by this even more so is just the beginning of life. Psalm 139. David, in Psalm 139, many of you are familiar with it. He gets there and he says, for you formed my inward parts. You wove me in my mother's womb. I will give thanks to you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. He's acknowledging that that God created him and that God was moving even in his mother's womb to weave him and to make him how God wanted him to be. That he says that even before one of my days existed, you wrote them in a book. They were were ordained. And and what what I want you to get is, is that there's no mistake that you are who you are. Oh, if I could speak to the young people this tonight. There's no mistake that you are who you are. As a little boy and a little girl, God made you that way. It pleased him to weave you together in your mother's womb. And you are fearfully and you are wonderfully made. And brothers and sisters, that includes all of the little, uh, little flaws that we have, doesn't it? Moses, when he, he stood before the burning bush, he said, God, I can't go because I can't speak. I'm tongue-tied. I have a list. I can't speak. And what does God say? Who made man's mouth? Who makes man mute and deaf? Who makes man sing and blind? Is it not I, the Lord? So even in all of our flaws... God did that, and he was pleased to do it. This is what Sherry and I, and you guys know our story with our precious little Julia when she was born. When she was so small, 
She was so tiny. And I remember this 30 days in the IC, the NICU, and she was in the incubator, and I had to keep allowing this truth, brothers and sisters, to flow over my soul and to flow over my mind, wave after wave of God's sovereignty and his providence, that yes, my daughter, she is fearfully and wonderfully made. As we considered surgery after surgery, she's up to, what, 11 now? Surgery after surgery after surgery, the curvature of her spine, she could barely walk. And yet God's word says, God is in control of her life. And she is fearfully and wonderfully made. And she is a good gift to us. Oh, how we need to understand this. You are white because God made you white. I am black Because God made me black. How can anyone ever stand over someone else that is different from them and somehow feel superior or inferior when it was all of God? Surely we as believers should understand this is God doing that. The Bibles teach us that this is his providence working. Number seven, God's providence extends over all our successes and over all of our failures. Over all of our successes and over all of our failures. Psalm 75, if you want to meet me there, you can turn there. Psalm 75, verse 6, Psalm 75, verse 6. For not from the east, nor from the west, nor from the desert comes exaltation. But God is the judge. Notice this, he puts down one and exalts another. He puts down one and exalts another. God raises up and God brings down. If I could just take us over real fast to the New Testament, you all know this well. James chapter 4, to all of us businessmen and businesswomen, we plan a trip to go and make some money. And what is James speaking for God? Says here, it says, come now, this is James 4, 13. Come now, you who say today or tomorrow we will go to such and such a city and spend a year there and engage in business and make a profit. Yet you do not know what your life will be like tomorrow. You are just a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills. You guys see that? That, that, that we'll, we'll not only make the trip, but we'll make a profit if the Lord wills. That is, your successes and your failures are under the sovereign control of God. So when you succeed, your praise should go to the Father. We bless you, Father, for this success. When your failures come, don't despair because your Father still is in control of your life. He controls all of it, every single act. He is in control, not violating our free agency, working concurrently through our choices. They are real choices. They matter, and yet God, in the mysteriousness of his sovereignty, moves and works in and through it all. Number eight, God's providence also extends over the protection and care of his people. Matthew chapter 6, you all know the texts very well. Matthew chapter 6, and Jesus is saying, don't worry, don't fret, don't be anxious. Matthew 6, verse 26, look at the birds, dear believers, look at the birds of the air. 
that they do not sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father, it's our Father, it's the glory of the Father. He feeds them, he feeds the birds. Are not you worth much more than they? Verse 28, and why are you worried about clothing? Observe how the lilies of the field grow. They do not toil. They do not spin. Verse 29, and yet I say to you that not even Solomon, all of his glory, clothed himself like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is alive today and tomorrow, is thrown into the fire, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Do not worry about what you're going to eat, what you're going to drink, and what clothes you're going to wear. For the Gentiles eagerly seek such things as these. For your heavenly Father knows that you need all of these things. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these needs will be added to you. God's going to provide for you, amen? God does provide for us, amen? God knows what we need. Carrie and I were just laughing about just <laughs> the condition of the stock market. You open one of those uh, quarterly uh, statements lately, it is not good. But God knows. He's in control. He will provide what you need. And here's the thing. Father always knows what is best. And he will work and he will provide. Ninth, and we're almost there. Ninth, God's providence extends even over the evil done by Satan and by people. Now, that's where the catch oftentimes comes in with providence. Like, we're fine with all of the other things, but you want to tell me that God is sovereign and in providence moves and works even through Satan and evil? Does not James 1 says that God cannot be tempted, nor does he tempt anyone by evil? How in the world can he do that? Here's the answer. I do not know. But he does. He does so in such a way that he cannot be accused of evil. But even Satan and evil are not, side, are not outside of the purview and the extensiveness of his sovereignty. I think it was Martin Luther. I could be corrected by my brethren or sisters here. I think it was Martin Luther that says the devil or Satan is God, Satan. And we see this in our Bibles. We see this in Job, do we not? We could turn there. In Job, we know the story. Verse 21, Job said, naked, I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return there. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. How could Job attribute what happened to him to the Lord? But he does. We know the backstory, do we not? That it was Satan and Satan had to go get permission from Job. It was God who actually directed Satan to go to Job. And Job received not only the blessings from God, but even the evil. And our, our, our English Bible softened it by saying calamities, but it is raw. It is the Hebrew word for evil. I think calamity is a good translation, but you guys get the picture. Job has no problem of seeing the loss of his finances, to seeing the loss of his family, to seeing the loss of his wealth as coming from the Lord. And yet it was evil Satan who did it. 
In chapter 2, verse 10, but he said to her, speaking to his wife, as she said, just curse God and die, why don't you? He said, you speak as one of the foolish women speaks. Shall we indeed accept good from God and not accept adversity? Attributing everything that happened to him to God. And it says there at the end of verse 10, in all this, Job did not sin with his lips. It was not wrong. It was not sin for Job to to attribute what happened to him to God. Because Job understood that his God reigns. Job understood that his God was great. Job understood that his God was sovereign. Job understood that God's sovereignty works through providence. And even sometimes, it's a frowning providence, and yet it's still God's good hand. Have you ever noticed, even just at the end of the book of Job, we sometimes stop reading, and it's this profound declaration there, even in verse chapter 42, verse 11, that all of his brothers and all of his sisters and all who had known him before came to him. This is when he's been blessed and things restored to him, and they ate bread with him in his house, and they counseled him and comforted him for all of the adversities that the Lord had brought on him. He understood that it was God, and if that doesn't catch you, And I want to direct your attention to Acts chapter 2, because the greatest evil ever committed in the universe was the evil that was committed against our Lord Jesus Christ. And as Peter preaches on the day of Pentecost, men, Acts 2, men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs, God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know. This man, notice this, delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to the cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. Peter understood the doctrine of divine providence, that it was God who was pleased to crush his son through the hands of wicked and evil men. In other words, that when God designed on the drawing board in eternity past how he would redeem a people for his own glory to the praise of his son, he drew up on the board that his son would go to Calvary's cross to die on behalf of all those who would put their faith and trust in him. And he would use then wicked men as a part of his plan so that when this happened, it would be attributed to God. And the men who put him on the cross will be held fully responsible for it. Behold the glory of our great God, that he is sovereign over even the evil done by Satan and by people. And then tenthly, we'll do this fast because I'll come back to this, Lord willing, on tomorrow. God's providence extends over the salvation of his people. And everybody say, Amen. In many respects, everything that we've been saying is moving in that direction, particularly for his people and their care and their protection and their ultimate salvation. But you know the text Romans 8, Romans 8, where Paul says, and we know, 828, and we know that God causes 
all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. What is the good that God is working all things together for us? What is that purpose? And it is that we would be conformed into the image of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. That one day in thought, word, and in deed, we will be as much as glorified humanity can be like Jesus Christ, the reigning king of the universe. And God will make that happen through his providence. We are in good hands, brothers and sisters. Fourthly, and I'm going to give you this really fast and then take my seat. Providence displayed. Providence displayed. And I want to just direct your attention you guys had to do this on your homework. I wasn't as good as I needed to be in managing my time here. But we find a monumental statement at the end of the book of Genesis. Starting from chapter 37 all the way to chapter 50. We have a lesson in the display of divine providence in the life of Joseph. That everything that you see reading in the life of Joseph, it's God moving in his life to his own birth order to the favoritism of his father, to the coat of many colors that he gave to him, to the jealousy that arose in his brother's hearts, to them, instead of killing them, putting them in a pit, to the Midianites driving by just in the nick of time and purchase him and taking him down into Egypt, he being sold into Potiphar's house, all of that, Potiphar being married to a wicked woman. She doing what she did, he, the text says, that the Lord was with him, and he ran, and he's arrested, and he's thrown into prison. All of it, it has the fingerprints of God's divine providence all over it, because God was doing something through the life of Joseph, just like he's doing something through your life as well, to God's favor on him, to God's giving Pharaoh dreams, giving Joseph the ability to know the dreams from the cupbearer and the baker, one dying, one being raised up. And when the dreams came, he said to Pharaoh, oh, I know of one who's still in prison. That's divine providence happening. For Joseph being raised up, second in command to Pharaoh. For the dreams coming, for the seven years of famine and the seven years of plenty. For the brothers to say, now, hey, let's go down into Egypt unless we starve to death. All of it, all of it is God moving. His providence being displayed. And Joseph understood it all. And in verse 20 of Genesis 50, we find these wonderful words. As for you, as Joseph is restoring his brothers, as for you, you meant evil against me. But God meant it for good in order to bring about this present result to preserve many people alive. You guys see it? And I, and I want you just to drill down. This is your homework. The text doesn't say that, that they meant it for evil and you responded to it for good. It's not what it says. It says they meant it for evil and you meant it for good. That is the very, is the very intention that God's providence was at work. God is not a responder. We were not playing a chess game with him. We move and then he moves. No, he moves in and through our moving. Our brother took us to Ephesians or, or um, Philippians chapter 2. Work out your own salvation in fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work in you both to will and to do 
according to his good pleasure. Did you know that, that God, your Father, is in you working not only for you to do good, but to actually will to do good? That's divine providence. And brothers and sisters, this is our glorious Father. And all of this traces back to him. He is an awesome Father. For from him and through him and to him are all things. I close with a quick story. Little boy is on an airplane by himself, seven or eight years old or not, and he's asleep. And there's massive turbulence happening at the time, massive turbulence. People on the plane are panicking, screaming. They're telling everybody just to get in your seat and get ready to take the thing. And the little boy is asleep, and the guy next to him wakes him up, wakes him up and says, the boy wakes up and goes, what is wrong? So don't you, don't you know what's happening? How, how can you be so calm? How can you be so calm? He says, well, we're about to crash. The little boy tells the man, like, well, I'm not worried because my daddy made this plane. He says, your daddy made this plane? Yes, my, my daddy made this plane. He designed this plane. Not only did my daddy design this plane, my daddy was in part of putting this plane together. He says, not only was my daddy make this plane and put it together, but my daddy is the one who made the trip for me. He bought the ticket for me. He told me I was going to get to the final destination. And he said, not only that, my daddy's in the front of the plane driving and flying the plane. And the little boy went back to sleep. And they landed. And everybody's all happy and thankful. And they get up and they walk off the plane. And the pilot comes from out of the cockpit and walks in. And the little boy's the last one to get off the plane. And the father grabs his hand and they walk off. And the little boy looks up to the man who was sitting next to him and said, I told you so. Probably not a true story. (laughs) But our Father made the plane. Our Father built the plane. Our Father purchased the ticket for us. And our Father is flying the plane. We will get to our final destination. God is sovereign. And he works through his providence. Let's pray together. You are good and kind, Father. Thank you. Thank you for being sovereign and controlling all things. You are worthy of our praise and we bless you today. Seal these truths to our heart that we will recall these things to mind and stand on the sure, solid foundation that you are in control as our Father. We praise you. We bless you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.